This is Strange Assembly, episode 152, Not Constantinople. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today are Jay Earl. Hello. And Mike Cook. What's up? And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us on the web at strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where, of course, we'd be delighted if you left us a review. But enough of the introductory mumbo-jumbo. We're here today to talk about some games that came out before Gen Con, but kind of got lost. Uh, well, some of them, you know, last year, but some of them that came out right before Gen Con that kind of got lost in the shuffle as we did our pre-Gen Con episodes and then our Gen Con review episodes. We're just going to have a look at four board games today. Istanbul, Bora Bora, Freedom the Underground Railroad, and Pagoda. Why don't you kick us off, Jay? Okay. So, Istanbul is... It's not quite a worker placement, though that's probably the closest conventional analog to what it is. So you've got spaces laid out in a 4x4 grid. You've got yourself a stack of workers, but instead of, you know, just placing workers out, you're moving your workers around the board. So you've got a stack of them. So whenever you go somewhere, you either have to leave one or grab one to actually be able to take whatever action it is you're doing. And so... As with most traditional worker placements games, it's all about get, building up your resources and then spending your resources to get victory points before everyone else does. The victory points specifically in this game are these nice little rubies. Think the uh, small tokens from Ascension. I mean, it looks like it's even the same molds, to my recollection. So the conceit of it is it's the bazaars of Istanbul, and you are a merchant with lots of assistance, and you're too important to do anything. You have to have assistance do things for you, but you're you're wandering around with your little cart where you put all your goods. So one of the important things is to balance it out of expanding out your cart such that you can hold more goods. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the basic flow of the game is you wander around this board building resources, spending them on victory points. I quite like the game. It very much is a game that rewards thinking ahead. As I said again, if you want to do whatever space you're taking for the turn, you either need to leave one of your workers or pick up one of your workers. That mechanic alone makes it such that someone who plans ahead and is able to put out all of their workers and then pick them all back up is probably in a much better place than the person who puts them all out and then has to go to the spot to summon them all back up. Yeah, and one of the things you can do with your resources that also can eventually get you victory points is pick up mosque tiles, and there's one of those that lets you pay two coins to summon one of your assistants back, and once you have that, it's... It becomes a slightly different game, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's basically always the correct thing to do to summon back your assistant rather than do nothing or do the summon tile. it You still benefit from not having to... Do it at all, yeah. If, do two every single turn. Yeah, if you could come back to your guys, that's still a better move, but... Yeah, if you can get that tile going, 
Yeah, with, with those tiles, one of the interesting things is the cost of them ramp as they're being bought. So basically, with your starting cart, you can hold enough goods to get the first of any tile, but you have to build out your cart to get any of the further down ones. So if there's, you know, competition for a good one, it may be, it may take a lot more to actually get a copy of the tile than the first person who did it. Yeah, probably the, the two things I'd add to round out the picture is that first, I don't know, did you mention that there is a modular board? So it's not just the same board every time. There are 16 different spots and you can put them out in one of three standard arrays or just do them randomly, which will change up what the sort of optimal pathing might be for that particular array. The other thing is, I don't think I'd really describe this as worker placement. It's well, no, but more of I mean, a that's pick the, up and deliver. I mean, that's the closest analog, I would think. It's not a traditional worker placement, but it does have some of those worker placement elements of positioning, collecting resources to spend them, victory points, that type of thing. You do, you do get punished for landing on a space somebody else is already in, too. True. Yes, and that and that absolutely does come up during the game. You know, you're you're waiting for okay, my next move is going to be to go visit the Wainwright or something, expand my oh, great. Especially early on when when the coins you have to pay the other merchant are a lot. Yeah, it it is not fun to be the last player in a five player game and be like. Well, all of the good places have already been go- that I can actually reach have already been gone to. Do I pay out some money to go to one of them, or do I take a lesser choice? Hmm. And the way the victory point wise, right? You said if you if you build your card out enough, you get a victory point. If you get the mosque tiles are in pairs. If you get both of the tiles from one mosque, you get a victory point. And then there's the, I think the Sultan's Palace and the Jeweler. Right, the Sultan's Palace lets you just trade specific stacks of resources, and each time you're doing that, it's going to cost more resources to do it, while the was it the Jeweler, you just pay straight up money, but again, every, t- every time a victory point is taken off of that space, the cost to take victory points off of that space increases. Yeah, and I, I think the one negative about this that I wish there was something you can do with is that the game ends when you get five victory points, right? When that's, that's not a ton. The very end of the game seems to either come very suddenly because uh, there are these cards that y- you can collect and that you'll play. They might give you extra coins or another resource or something, but one of the things they can do is let you take the Sultan's Palace or the Jeweler Spot twice. So you can just let, you know, if you, if you go to the Jeweler Spot and you've got 35 coins and you play the card and you collect your final two rubies and you win and everybody's kind of like, oh, oh, what just Oops. happened? Yeah. Or you do the exact same thing, but without the card, which, which often may mean that unless somebody is within a turn or two of you, that if the other players are paying attention, they look at your stack of money, they look at your position, and they realize that you have the ability to just go from where you are to the jeweler, back to somewhere else, and then back to the jeweler, and you're going to win in three turns, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And so it, right, it, it's very anticlimactic at that point. 
yeah, the anticlimactic. I think that's a very good word. I wish I wish there was a a way to have the end be a little bit more satisfactory. But uh, overall, I thought it was a very good game. Uh, what did you think, Mike? I did not care for it myself. To me, the problem is, so when you're moving on this grid, you start on a square. Is the square always in the same position on the grid, or it moves around with all the other square tiles? It can move around. In all the random, in the, sorry, in all the non-random setups, it's in the same position. It's going to be right. one of the four middle tiles. Right, so I guess one of my biggest problems with it is the way that you would path it to make it the most beneficial to you, basically, because you can move two any time that you move. So you can move one up and one over, two over, whatever. Basically, you just figure out a path where you want to go to all of those things twice, if you can at all, uh, because otherwise it becomes a little bit, it becomes kind of hard to not uh, drop off a disc. To me, I didn't feel like that was a particularly great mechanic. I didn't really like how much the cost of things scaled up. I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of great alternatives if somebody else got to something before you did. Maybe that was just me. I just didn't really. And then the ending, like we were talking about, where it just becomes really, really obvious who's going to win. I don't know. I I just didn't really care for it much at all. I wanted to like it, but I just ended up not. Well, that's uh, two thumbs up and one thumb down for Istanbul. That's designed by Rudiger Dorn, and it's a Pegasus spiel game and Alderac Entertainment Group in the U.S. The next game up is Bora Bora. This is a Stefan Feld, one of his thousand or so games that came out in 2013. This is a dice-rolling worker placement game that has an awful lot of moving parts to it. You are set on, right, the tropical island of Bora Bora, and you're trying to build up your tribe, I guess? And the core mechanic of what you're doing is that on your turn, you're at the start, sorry, not on your turn, at the start of a round, everybody is rolling three dice. And there are six spots that you can assign those dice to, that everyone can assign those dice to. And when you assign a die, the higher the number you're assigning, the bigger the effect that you get. But you can only assign a die to the spot if the number on the die is lower than any die that is already there. So, you know, if you go first and you roll a six, you can just go ahead and drop a six on some spot that it's really important for you to get that effect in a big way, and you can get it. But then after that, uh, there's an awful lot of getting in each other's ways. It actually felt much more brutal to me than the standard worker placement where, you know, you, you kind of know, okay, somebody might take this, and it's either there or it's not. But and now it matters the order in which you place which of your workers, and you have to place the one that's a six now, or you know you're going to get blocked, and you're sitting there hoping that if somebody places a die on one of the spots that they place their three so that you can place their two, your two, but oh no, then they place your one, and you're now you're completely blocked out of the square. And, and what you're doing with these actions are, you know, you're 
there are man tiles and woman tiles, and you're acquiring those and putting them on your player board, and you're acquiring these conks, which at the end of the turn you'll use to buy jewelry, and then you're you have little goals on your board. You're trying to acquire those. There's a temple track where you can assign priests, which can be worth victory points, and also get fire actions. And you can invoke the gods. And you have to have an offering and the appropriate god card. And the god cards let you do things like ignore the rules for assigning your workers. It lets you assign anything you want. Or once you've assigned a die of any sort, you can count it like it was a six. So not, and you know, all of a sudden your one becomes a six. And there's just an awful lot going on. And so it's one that I felt like I, I enjoyed playing it, but it's hard to get excited about it because it was just so much to keep track of. I usually think of myself as somebody who likes relatively heavy games and I'm willing to play relatively long games, but I don't know. This one kind of reached the tipping point where it, it, I don't, you know, whatever the sort of optimal peak complexity level is, it, it kind of went over to the other side of it for me. I, I mean, a lot of play people really like this, but I would have liked it a bit more if it had scaled back one of those those sub mechanics. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that there's a map and that you can spread out your huts on the map. And then there are different tiles that depend on what the kind of terrain is that you're on the map. And then I mentioned that there are fish next to the territories on the map that might be worth points if you have the right card when you move onto the territory, and then might be worth, are going to be worth points at the end of the game. And, oh my lord. So, I think it's probably better than my tone is, but, but you definitely have to be prepared for a, a very point salad sort of experience, which some people really like. That's Bora Bora by Stefan Feld, published by Ravensburger. What do you have for us next, Mike? So the next game is Freedom, which is... How would you actually describe this game? I don't know it's really a worker placement game. It felt like it's a cooperative board game. It's a cooperative board game where you are trying to get uh, slaves out of the South in pre-Civil War era through a map of the eastern United States where you're trying to get them into Canada. So obviously you're trying to secret them through, and then there are events that will help you do that. There are events that will cause you problems, and all those events are based in real historical events that happened. Then you will also have slave catchers that will move based on how you move the slaves up as there's more movement, there's, you know, whisperings or whatever I, I would imagine is the idea, and then they'll move to try and get them. Um, there will be slave ships that come over, which are basically just more of the slaves will be coming through. And if there are too many, then you will lose them. If you lose too many, then you lose the game. If you get enough people's freedom secured, then you win. That's pretty much the majority of the game. There are a few other mechanics, but that's that's the basic gist of it. Well, that would be the part where you would hear Mike launch into an uh, opinion of Freedom, the Underground Railroad. But actually, uh, we just lost him because the apartment above him has some sort of large leak and he has been required to evacuate. But the show must go on. Allegedly. Well, the show is going on? Okay, fair enough. Freedom, 
was a game that I was really looking forward to. I almost kickstarted it, and then it won all these Dice Tower Awards, and I was finally like, oh, and nobody in any of my gaming groups had got it. So I'm like, okay, okay, I just got to go get this myself. And I have to say I was disappointed in this one. It's not that there's anything wrong with the mechanics, but the way that it ended up playing was entirely just sort of excessive puzzle solving. Yeah. On each turn, each player is going to be able to take two actions, plus possibly play a card, and there are only so many action tokens, so it ended up being this exercise of everybody sitting down and being like, okay, so if you buy these tokens and he buy those he buys those tokens and then we move the the slaves up through this particular route then it'll drag this slave catcher here and it'll drag that slave catcher there and what can we do to to get them right. up and it's very much a puzzle solve of how do we optimize this turn yes. there wasn't enough information to optimize further than that but it was very much, yeah, how do we optimize right now this one turn? Yeah, and this one turn is long enough that that got vexing. Uh, I mean, the, the, the game at most lasts eight turns, because at the end of the eighth turn, if you haven't won, then you lose. Always a fun mechanic. Well, I, <laughs> I guess you could just have people come in perpetually. If you're just playing with the normal rules, it's not difficult to win. Because of the flavor, people have a desire to want to win without ever losing anyone ever, and that gets more difficult. But I don't like that as a way to increase the difficulty to some extent, because then it just requires you to... Even more puzzle solve. Yes, to puzzle it even more. It was like, yeah, we got to near the end of the last game that we played, and it was just a relief when we realized, okay, so if we do this, that, and the other, then it doesn't matter what we do on the next turn. We might lose, <laughs> like, ten people, but yeah, we just want the game to be over. I haven't played it solo, the game has scaling elements, but at its core, it's the same mechanic. Sure, you have played it solo, just Mike and I were there, too. <laughs> yeah, so that it might be better as a solo experience where it's just you sitting sitting there puzzling it. I usually like games as social experiences more, but this one just did not click. I mean, you want to applaud Academy Games for making a game out of a out of a difficult subject, it basically has to be a co-op game because no one that I want to talk with is going to... <laughs> yes. Important caveat there. ...is going to want to play the the abolition game where you're the slavers. And there's lots of historical information built into it that I really liked. All of the All of the cards are different people and different events. And there might be some flavor text on the card and then there might be more in the rule book about it. I just, yeah, it, it just did not work for any of us, which was really surprising because a lot of people have really liked this game. It was said that, I mean, I felt like it were very much points where it was much more interesting to just read all of the flavor of the game than it was to actually play the game. 
So that was Freedom the Underground Railroad, designed by Brian Mayer from Academy Games. The last game we've got up today is Pagoda. Pagoda is designed by RV Fueler, like Istan Bullets from Pegasus Spiel and Alderac Entertainment Group. Pagoda is strictly a two-player game. The two players sit on opposite sides of a narrow board, and there are five spots on this board where you are building pagoda. Each pagoda is built by putting four columns down. They have these wooden column pieces, and then you put down a tile that's the the floor of the next floor, and then you have to put four more columns, and then the next tile, and then four more columns, and then... After four sets of columns, you get to the roof, which has a pillar on top of it. And on your turn, you are playing cards out of your hand, which are... You effectively have a seven-card hand, five of which are public information, two of which are not. And what you are trying to do is, is you have to build at least one column. You can't build more than three columns. You have the option of building a roof as well. And once you start building columns for a particular section, it defines what color all the other columns have to be for that section. When you play one of the tiles, it defines what the color, the column color is going to have to be for the next layer. And the higher you get in the pagoda, the more things are worth. When you put down the tiles, you get special abilities, like being able to draw more cards or being able to play an extra column. And so you have to f- try to figure out what the optimal number of columns is to play. Like, well, if I use all three of these and put them out, well, I'll get two points each. But then I can see that my opponent is going to be able to get one for two points, then play the next tile, then get another two for three. And maybe I'm better off just putting one down instead of three and waiting until I've got a better array of cards or putting one down here and putting my other two somewhere else. You play until three of the Pagoda are constructed and then whoever has the most points wins. I think this one was okay. Its biggest upside for me is that my wife thought it was okay too, so it gives us another option to play for just two-player games if we're just sitting out, but I don't feel it's something that any of us are ever going to be you know, oh yeah, we we definitely want to play that. She'd probably much rather just throttle me in Lost Cities, which I cannot seem to win to save my life. So I saw a lot of this being played at Gen Con. This is obviously one of their, you know, the games they were trying to push. And after watching a couple, is it just me, or do you almost want to play a game of Rampage right after? (laughs) Yes, except it's not Rampage anymore. Oh, what is the name of it then? It's... Just something generic. Rampage isn't generic enough? Okay. It's Terror in Meeple City is what the name is now. But remember, Rampage isn't generic. Rampage was the name of a video game where you played monsters who went around and smashed the city. Right, okay. So I suspect that at some point after they published Rampage, they got a cease and desist letter (laughs) from the company that owned the trademark on the video game, and so they changed the name. Yeah, so... Rampage is now terror in in Meeple City. But yes, I guess you could spice up Pagoda by by knocking it down some way. I probably would have liked Pagoda a little bit more if I felt like the decisions were harder. 
which I guess would make some people like it less. It felt like, for the most part, you were often still just wanting to... I mean, you always wanted to play three. Right, if you could. There was just so much ability to cycle everything and not knowing what you were going to get. It it didn't often feel like the right decision to hold off entirely on playing car on, on playing the columns. I mean, I'd you do things like, okay, I'm only going to put one here and hope that I get another two blue cards out of the stuff that I play, but you've got to actually play all of your columns or else you're not clearing through the cards to set up what you need. I don't think. So that was all right. Wow, I that was a that was a pretty meh feel filled uh episode for us, wasn't it? Meh. We're we're sort of, you know, off that high of Gen Con, we're sort of hit the doldrums, unfortunately. Well, this was just kind of random when these ones happen to come up. Now that Mike's gone, we're just purely positive on Istanbul, right? Yep. So there's that. So, yeah, we're going to see. Istanbul, Bora Bora, Pagoda, Freedom, I guess would be my my current ordering of of these. But, yeah, Istanbul feels like the one I would get jazzed about, whereas Bora Bora is like, if somebody else wants to play it, I'd be like, oh, sure, we can play that, but I, I wouldn't seek it out. Right. So, a nice, generic, run-of-the-mill episode of Strange Assembly after all the, the Gen Con craziness. Hopefully, in the near future, we'll have a really way-too-detailed, geeky Dungeons & Dragons episode. We've gotten to play that, but I at least would like to to play through a more complete set of adventures before we have our you know, one episode on that because it's it's so hard to come back and talk about RPGs. But if you're you're interested in D and D, that is definitely still coming up. If you're an L5R player, Brian Reese and I are still planning on doing an interview. We're having some scheduling difficulties, but hopefully that will be coming soon. Jay keeps telling me he's going to review the Strange, so we'll see if that happens. He he delivered on the Doomtown article, huh? Eh? Yeah, but I don't have to read a, like, 800-page book to uh, do that. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, there, there is actually some amount of effort involved in uh, producing a review of something shortly after it comes out. <laughs> that, that said, I, I, in addition to The Strange, with the, the because I kickstarted it, they had a little fiction book, and I read all of those, and those got me super jazzed. Those were really good stories. So, there's that. Well, yeah, our audience would just have to uh, cross their fingers and and hold their breaths because uh, I can't actually do every RPG Kickstarter that looks interesting. So I did not do that one. Just just sell your kids on eBay. You'll make more than enough money to afford all of them. Yeah. Bonus: you won't have to you know pay for room or food or board anymore. So you'll be able to invest that money in more Kickstarter games. Yes. Well, with the you know being in prison and all. Indeed, I. Uh, but but the lawyers' fees will eat up all the money. So uh, there's always a flaw in these plans. There is. Yeah. Well, what just what just ended the uh, the Lone Wolf? I did all the the Lone Wolf adventure books when I was a. Uh, mm. I say kid, but 
<laughs> what was that like middle school and did those finish when i was in is high school the last time i did one of those so i don't know sadly that yeah oh i'm old but it was gonna be maybe a hundred bucks to get it in like the, the sort of way that would have not just the the well, i don't know player's handbook equivalent but the sort of the gazetteer and the bestiary and the things you would want yeah these, yeah, I will have to to pass. But what was one I did do? I got wheeled the John Wick book, where your character isn't really your character. Your character is a magical item, and then is <laughs> right. just wielded by, which is a really cool concept. And then I I got the book, and it's sort of like here's this really cool concept. And, oh, I suppose there are some rules, too, that we don't... I don't know. If we have to, I guess. Well, I, it, actually, the bulk of the book was sort of taken up by the powers, but I thought there was going to be more discussion about how you would actually run this as an ongoing campaign or more flavor. I don't know. It was a little weird. It was, yeah, like, the best part of it was just them coming up with a concept. Yeah. <laughs> With the uh, the execution not as exciting. I mean, but that was a, a cheapy one. So, but we didn't say we were going to talk about this before we go even further off the rails. You have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit our website at strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can follow us. On Twitter, we're at Strange Assembly, or visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly. You can email me. It's chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Jay Earl and the fleeing in terror from water damage Mike Cook, <laughs> I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs>